Well, today we're going to continue our series as we're looking at the 12 apostles, and we come to one who you may have heard of, but you probably don't know much about. And if that's the case, you're not alone, because there's actually very little known about this guy. We're going to be talking a little bit today about a guy named James, but not James the Greater. Today we're talking about James the Lesser. Now, that name the Lesser describes something about him. We're not totally sure what it describes about him, though. It's sort of a, a nickname that, for some reason, he had uh, picked up in his time with Jesus with the other apostles. And like most nicknames, it's used to distinguish somebody, a characteristic about them, or to distinguish them apart from another person. And, and it's thought that James the Lesser was given that name, in part at least, because there's three James in the Bible that we need to distinguish between. See, there is James the Greater, who we learned about during week three of this series, who was the brother of John. And then there's James, the brother of Jesus, who at first didn't believe his brother's claims that he was the Messiah, but then actually came to a point of believing that, that Jesus truly was the Messiah and actually wrote the book of James that we find in our New Testament. And then the third James we find is James the Lesser, who we're going to talk a bit about today. But we don't really know what that lesser refers to. It's a nickname. It must refer to something. Like, uh, we probably know people from our lives and from TV and from media who have nicknames and there's a reason for them. And sometimes you can, you can look at the name and discern what the reason is. For example, if I give you some nicknames, you can probably tell me who that person is I'm referring to. Sometimes there are terms of endearment where if you're referring to a spouse or a child, you might use a nickname like Honey or Sweetie, right? That's somewhere, different families will use that. But what about some of these more famous people or, or friends or teammates you may have? Like, for example, if I use the nickname, the great one, who's that? Gretzky, right? That's an easy one. Great one. Gretzky, Wayne Gretzky. What about, uh, what about if I said, old blue eyes? Frank Sinatra, right? So Frank Sinatra youth was this guy who used to do some singing back. <laughs> so how about, how about another one from a few decades ago, the pelvis? Elvis, the pelvis, that's right. That was scandalous back in the back in the day. What about uh, uh, the juice? O.J. Simpson, right? Uh, here's one for you guys. Fresh Prince. Will Smith, Fresh Prince. That's right. So all of these nicknames are attached to people because they give us points of reference that associate with the individual somehow. But when it comes to James, we're not really sure what the lesser refers to. Does it refer to perhaps his stature? Maybe he was short and kind of scrawny. Does it refer to his age because he was the youngest of all the apostles? Was it because he was shy and quiet? Maybe. Perhaps all of us actually, because we actually, out of all the disciples, know the least about this guy. You know, apart from the fact that he is mentioned three times in the list of the apostles, he doesn't come up anymore. It, it, you know, his mom actually comes up more than he does. His mom is mentioned a couple of times because she was with the women who were present at the crucifixion, and she was among the women who went to the tomb to attend to Jesus' body. So actually, James the Lesser's mom shows up more than James himself does in the New Testament. Now, beyond the fact that he was an apostle, what we do know is that he had a father by the name of Alphaeus, <clears throat> excuse me, and we do know that he followed Jesus throughout his entire ministry. And that years later, following the ascension of Jesus Christ, James was involved in, in working with the church in Jerusalem. And then after a while, he went out to spread the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the country of Egypt, where he was eventually killed by stoning. Now, even though we don't find him mentioned the Gospels, it is likely he was the youngest of all the apostles. Some people think he was even as young as 13 years of age that he was called to follow. 
And even though he may have been overshadowed by other apostles, by others who were a little more bold, a little more brash, a little more, more energetic and involved, he was still one of the 12. So regardless of how young he was or how shy or how quiet or scrawny he was, he was one of the 12 people that Jesus called to follow him on his earthly ministry. And I think we could agree that's a pretty big deal, that he was able to do that. He was called to do that. We also know that he didn't seek recognition. He didn't seek fame. He, he didn't receive all sorts of credit and glory for the work and the service that he did do. But what he did do was he accepted the call of Jesus Christ upon his life. He faithfully followed him as he was discipled by Jesus. And he sacrificed all for Jesus to his dying breath. We do know that about James the Lesser. And so what can we learn from this? I think one thing that we can learn is that sometimes our physical reality does not always match our spiritual reality. James wasn't a big guy. He wasn't a bold, brash guy. He isn't the most involved, and there aren't novels and stories written about him throughout our Bible. But we do know that there must have been a spiritual maturity in him that allowed him to follow Jesus for all these years and accomplish great things to his dying breath. You know, so it is possible that a person can be a newer believer, and they can be growing and flourishing in their faith and that maturing very, very quickly. It's also possible that a person can be in the church for decades. A person can have gone to Bible college, can have gone on mission trips, could be leading a small group, and still be relatively spiritually immature, even though that may not match their physical or chronological reality. You know, this, I think, tends to be a struggle for a lot of Christians, where people quite often start off with all sorts of enthusiasm and energy and excitement as they come into a relationship with Christ. And they have this hunger just to grow and to learn and to know more. But then after a while, it, it just kind of plateaus. And it sort of levels off. We see this in other areas of life too, where, for example, if you get a new job, when, when you start that new job, you're like a sponge. You, you just want to soak up all the knowledge you can. You want to learn what, what needs to get done and then apply that daily out of a sense of necessity. Or if you start a new school year, you want to do well, not like last year. You want to do well this time, and so you commit to, I'm going to read, I'm, I'm going to study, I'm going to go to all my classes. Or what about when you get onto a new team? You got to learn the playbook. You got to exercise. I want to stay healthy. I don't want to be on the bench. I want to be in the game. And it's a long season, so I got to commit and I got to do my part. We see in each of these scenarios, it's so often the tendency to start off strong, to fully commit ourselves, to be involved, to soak everything up like a sponge. And then we reach a level of sufficiency. And we can start to pull back a little bit. We can get to this point where we know enough to get by. And it gets comfortable. See, we see this in all areas of life, but Jesus was concerned about this when it came to our spiritual lives. Because he was concerned about happening to us within our own lives and within the church as well. And we read about this in one area in particular, in Revelation chapter 2, where, where Jesus is addressing the church in Ephesus. And he says to these followers, he says, guys, I know your good deeds. I know that you have worked hard. I know you have persevered. I know there have been hardships that have come your way, and you have endured those. I know that you hate false teachers and you are on guard against them constantly. Good on you guys for all of those things. But he continues and goes, but here's my problem I got with you. The problem I have is that you have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken the love you had at first. And he calls them to consider how far they have fallen from that. And to repent of it and to return to the things that they did at first. 
You see, it appears that this group of followers of Jesus Christ had reached a point of self-sufficiency. And they had stopped growing. It doesn't mean they stopped loving Jesus. It doesn't mean that they stopped being committed. But there's a sense that they had perhaps plateaued. And it kind of put it on cruise control for a time. They thought they knew enough. They, they thought they had done enough that they could get by. That their investment and their, and their fervor was starting to go a little bit stale. Like a couple who's been married for many years and are still in love with each other and are still committed to each other. But the romance has started to fade. Now if that sounds like your spiritual reality in your own life today. Or if you have never taken this step of faith with Jesus Christ to enter into that relationship, then you know part of today's message is for you. Because we're going to take some time to define these different stages of spiritual formation. And we're going to see where you may be at. And we're also going to have a look and see what it might look like to re-engage if stagnation has started to set in. Now perhaps you're here and you do have a passionate, growing faith in Jesus Christ, and you would say, no, I don't need to re-engage. I'm already engaged. I'm, I'm committed, and I'm growing in my faith. Well, you know what? Some of the stuff I have for you today is still for you, because you may actually be counted among the more mature believers that we have here, and that is fantastic. We love you and need you in our midst. But it is a lifelong process of learning as we grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And if that is where you find yourself today, then you have an opportunity, an incredible opportunity to help others to identify where they're at, and to help them continue to grow in their knowledge of the Lord. You know, James may have not been the oldest. He may not have been the tallest, the boldest. But he had a spiritual maturity that developed throughout his time with Jesus Christ. It enabled him to live his life for Jesus Christ right to his dying breath. And I really honestly believe that the same is going to be said of us. It's not going to come from some external, physical, chronological features that define part of who we are but it's going to come from a heart that is fully engaged in the things of Jesus Christ. Because every follower of Jesus Christ is called to engage in a lifelong journey of growing more and more into the image of Christ. Paul wrote about this as well in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where he said this. He said, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, and are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. You see, this begins at the time of spiritual birth, when we, when we have this moment of salvation, where we have accepted Jesus Christ's gift for forgiveness of our sin, and, and as, as we use the term, get saved. We, we, we're free from the, from the old life and are given a new life that is able to see God clearly and live with him eternally. But then this continues throughout our entire lives as we gradually and hopefully continually turn more and more ever into the image of Christ. That's actually what the word Christian means, is little Christ, as we become more and more like him. If we're honest, however, I, I think most of us would agree that this is not a, a steady, smooth, gradual acceleration that just kind of continues. But it's more like when you're learning to drive a stick shift, if you will. Remember what that was like where at first you rev it too much? And then sometimes you stall, and then you got to restart the car again, and the guy behind you honking at the red light there. And then finally you get going, but as you get going, it's still, it's still kind of lurching as you drive down the road until finally you, you manage to gain some momentum and you get some progress, but then, then you got to change gears, and so you grind them until you find them. And then you finally get it going, and you get the hang of it over time. But it takes practice, it takes time, and it's a little messy for the first little bit, right? 
Now, as a pastor, there are people who will come and talk to me about some of these challenges they have in their lives. And, and it happens on a fairly regular basis that, that I hear common stories about this. It's like driving a stick shift. It's a little lurchy, a little jerky. But when I hear these stories, I don't get too concerned about the revving. I don't get too concerned about the cameline or, or what speed they're moving at because the fact that they're experiencing those things is evidence of effort. It's evidence of progress. They're engaged in the process, and we can celebrate that and help them to encourage them along with that. Where I do get concerned is the stalling. I get concerned on the stalling in particular if they, people have a hard time getting going again because stalling can lead to stagnation and can lead to quitting. You know, there are seasons in my own life where I've experienced this. Just because I have the word pastor attached to my name does not mean I immediately become immune to all of these sorts of things. I know what it's like to be distracted from your first love. I know what it's like to get busy. I know what it's like to get depressed or to have, have things and people weighing down upon you. I know what it's like to have other people's needs be overwhelming to your own personal growth. You know, in one of my favorite pastors and authors, a guy by the name of Craig Rochelle talks about the exact same thing, and he confessed in one of his own books where he said this. He said, if you're like me, your spiritual drift didn't happen on purpose. Like a tiny leak in a tire, slowly but surely, your spiritual passion quietly just slipped away until you became a fully, a fully <clears throat> instead of a fully devoted follower of Christ, you intentionally became a full-time pastor and a part-time follower of Christ. Can you relate with that idea at all? Think of the word pastor. Maybe you became a full-time carpenter, a full-time salesman, a full-time businessman, a full-time mother, and a part-time follower of Christ. You became a full-time teacher, a a full-time cab driver, a full-time student, and a part-time follower of Christ. This is something that we can all be prone to in our lives. And when this takes place in a person's life, the solution is to re-engage in the process of growing into the image of Christ. And the first step is to honestly assess where we stalled out, to know where we stalled out so we can know where to pick up again and what steps it takes to get on to the next stage. And Jesus gave us some insight into how we can do this. He, he, um, he said that we can identify other people and we can identify ourselves based upon the fruit that we produce. He talked about this in, um, in Luke chapter 6, when he says a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. See, in the first part of this verse, we, we see that what a person's actions are, they flow from the heart. And in the time that Jesus originally wrote this, it, the heart was believed to be the control center of the entire person. The heart was the control center where all of your emotions, your, your desires, your drives came from. All of those things which, which motivate you to action. Therefore, if you have evil emotions or desires or drives, that means you have evil in your heart which leads to evil actions. And, and the opposite is true too. If you have good emotions and desires and drives in your heart, it leads to good actions. The heart was seen as the control center of the actions that a person has. The second part of the verse says that we can also pay attention to the words that a person uses because the words also come from within a person's heart. And so we can listen to what they say, to the questions they ask, to the statements they make, to the defenses of themselves and of other people that they use. And this also reveals what is in their heart. It takes time, though, because most of us are really good at putting up some facades to make sure that our actions and our words are in line with what we think is socially appropriate. 
So it can take time to really get to understand what is in a person's heart through their actions and deeds as we observe them without facades. And you know where this happens best? One of the best places we can find this is in a a small group. If you're able to join a well-organized small group, you'll find that you'll have an opportunity for some of these facades to start to come down where people enter into a moment of not just having a social club, but an opportunity to truly know others and to be known by others. To get into a group of people where there's regular meeting taking place, where there's authentic connection happening, where there's spiritual growth through studying the word of God and through praying takes place, and through serving alongside one another, we get to truly see actions and hear the words what's within a person. And in the weeks and months ahead, you're going to hear more about these small groups because we're currently in a season of recruiting some new leaders and offering some training to our small group ministry so that in January we can launch some new ones and help people get into these sorts of environments where these wonderful spiritual growth opportunities can take place. But getting back to this test here, so there's two sides to it. There is the actions and the words that help us to identify perhaps what level of spiritual maturity we may be at. So let's take this a step further and look at some different models, some different stages within a model of spiritual growth. Now, there's lots of them out there, and the one I want to present to you here this morning was written by a guy named Jim Putman, who wrote a book called Real Life Discipleship. And I like his a lot, because he takes a common idea within the church, and he builds a model upon the New Testament analogy that of physical development that's used to illustrate spiritual development. Along the lines of the passage we read earlier in the service here today, that passage from 1 John where, where John addresses children and young men and fathers. Now, I don't think he was just writing this letter to an all-boys school or to a men's colony. When he uses these, they are, they're meant to illustrate different sp- stages of spiritual growth that can take place within a believer's life. And so we're going to take a second. We're going to scribe a couple of these for you. And it's going to get a little technical. So if that's not kind of your, your, your uh, cup of tea, I apologize in advance. But we're going to unpack these fairly quickly, but with enough detail that you can perhaps see which one may I be at. And if I'm at a certain, stalled out a certain stage or at a certain stage, what would it look like to get to the next one? Or, or what are my greatest needs that happen within each one? So we'll go through these, and I want to encourage you to consider where you may find yourself at in this spiritual growth wheel that we have up here. Now, the first stage, the first stage is where a person is what we refer to as spiritually dead. No, he or she has not, does not have a belief in Jesus Christ. They're not born again. And we can characterize a person at this stage by the word unbelief. And they may say things like, you know, I don't believe there is a God. Or I believe the Bible is just a bunch of myths. You can't trust that. Or they may even find people who are saying things like, I've been a good person, so I think I'll be okay. Or even, you know, I've been going to church for a long time, and and that's all it means to be a Christian. But Paul bluntly tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that that if we are without Christ, then we are dead in our trespasses in, in our sins. Meaning that each of us is separated from God, who is life. And that not only will we die physically, but according to Revelation chapter 20, there is a second death that will be experienced by all those who enter into eternity without Jesus Christ in their lives. However, when we accept the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died upon the cross to pay for our sins, when we accept that, we can be born again. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit moves into our lives and helps us to grow in our new relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And while we will still die physically, there's no way to avoid that, we will not have this eternal separation from God because we are spiritually alive with God. Now, if you know somebody, and all of us know people who are at this particular stage in their life, what they need most at this stage is a relationship with a trusted follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody who can live out the Christian life in front of them who can be a model to them, who can explain with words the good news of Jesus Christ and invite them to accept him into their lives. And one of the greatest options, if you have a person in your life that's at this stage, is to bring them to Alpha, where all of these sorts of things take place and get explained to them. So that's our first stage. Now, as we move beyond that stage, we enter into what's referred to as stage two, being a spiritual infant, where we're a new believer, and there's all sorts of excitement, and there's this eagerness to learn and to share our new life and our new faith with other people. Because when we enter into this stage, we know something has changed. And if we're honest, our, our unsaved friends know something has changed as well, because they start calling out differences within our lives at this moment. And people at this stage may experience spiritual highs, and they're quick to announce to anybody who will listen their new faith and the new reality that exists within them. And in their exuberance... And due to their lack of biblical knowledge and experience, they tend to make some messes at this stage. And then this stage can be characterized by the word ignorance. Now, not ignorance in a, in a negative, condescending way, but ignorance just not by choice or by lack of effort, just from a, a fact that there's a lack of knowledge, that there's a lack of experience. They still need to figure out how to do this new life that they've entered into. And a person who at this stage may say things like, I didn't know the Bible said that. Or, you know, I, I think I pray and I read my Bible enough. That's, that's all I have to do, isn't it? Or they may say, do I really have to go to church? Is that really important? Is that really part of this? Now, due to the newness of this new Christian life within them, what they need most is a spiritual parent to come alongside the spiritual infant who can offer them, again, a model and a guide to go through these first early stages, to explain to them and to show them what it looks like and the importance of praying, uh, of studying the Bible, of being part of a greater community, and of sharing their faith with other people they come into contact with. This can happen wonderfully through one-on-one -on -one mentoring, but can also happen again through the small groups, like I mentioned a moment ago, is a great place for these sorts of things to take, take shape. And then we move on to stage three. A spiritual infant then becomes a spiritual child. And as infants grow, they grow in their basic understanding of the faith. But they're still developing. There, there's usually still a great excitement that exists within them. And they're beginning to be able to understand and to follow the do's and the don'ts that they find in Scripture. But often the reason that they follow the do's and don'ts, the reason that they obey these things, is simply because they want to avoid God's wrath. I better do the good things because I don't want to get punished. Or I better do not do these things because I want to gain rewards. And so, like a lot of children, their obedience is, is based upon reward and punishment that takes place. Therefore, people at this stage can, at times, come across as very legalistic, can come across as very aggressive even when sharing their faith. They may appear innocent, but there's often also a wrestling going on within them still, as they're wrestling with rebellion, and they act often in more selfish ways, which leads them to say things like, I love my small group, so don't add anybody else to it. I just want it the way it is. It's serving my needs perfectly. You may also find somebody at this stage saying things like, you know, I'm not being fed at my church, and so I'm going to go somewhere else where they will meet my needs better. Now, at this stage, 
There is a need to move from being fed to becoming a self-feeder. This is a critical step in the life of a, of a person growing spiritually, is to go from being fed to being able to feed them, themselves as well. And in particular, they need to grow in this understanding of what it means to be in relationship with God, in light of his love and in light of his grace, to go along with the truth that they have firmly embraced at this point. This is also a good opportunity for somebody to start volunteering, uh, even to start getting into some leadership roles that most would enjoy and help to move them forward. So we go to stage four. They move from that into a stage of spiritual young adulthood. And at this point, significant growth has taken place. Quite often, they're eager to serve. We're thinking more independently. And we're beginning to look and act and sound like a much more mature person. But there's still a lot to learn about responsibility and caring for other people. Quite often, there's a need and a desire for greater independence. Parents who have young adults in home still, we know all about that, right? This great need for independence. And they get frustrated by guidelines and frustrated by the accountability that still may exist within ministries and within certain structures they're involved in. And so they tend to go to this very black and white understanding of what should and should not happen within the church. And very black and white thinking about the ministry side of things now. But they become more strategic and they become characterized by being God-focused and others-centered, which is a very big change from the previous stage, which was focused upon the self. Now it's God-centered, and other focus has started to take shape. And so because of that, they want more freedom. And they should have it, because they've grown a fair bit at this point, and they should be able to spread their wings a little more, but still have a need for continued coaching. And so they may say things like this. They say things like, like I, have a lead, I have a small group, maybe I could start leading that. Or I have a few friends I maybe want to invite to come to my small group. Or look at all the new people that are here with us today. That's awesome. I wonder how we can get them connected, this other-centered sort of idea. Or they might say something like, you know, in my devotions, I came across something I've never seen before, and I have a question about that. And they engage in conversations about these things. Somebody who is at this stage in spiritual development, the greatest need that they have is to step out, to step out and to start serving and to start leading in more serious manners and to be encouraged to do so and give an opportunity to do so. But there's a caution with it as well. The caution is that we need to remain humble, that we need to allow the spiritual gifts and passions within us to continue to develop and to grow under the guidance of a coach or under the guidance of another person who can keep walking with us within the boundaries that exist. Until we get to the fifth and final stage of being a spiritual parent, in this final stage, a person is mature enough now that they're seeing regular, not just ability, but regular results in their ability to reproduce. Now, the term parent is very intentional here. Parent rather than adult, because this stage is characterized by reproducing disciples. At this stage, it's not just about the ability to reproduce, it's about the active commitment to nurture relationships where that actually starts to take place. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the only stage at which we do this. Because regardless of which stage you may find yourself at, you have the ability to be involved in sharing your faith and reproducing to the person who is a step below you. So if you're a parent, you can minister to any of the stages below you, a young adult to a child, a child to an infant, an infant to somebody who is spiritually dead. If there's a somebody who is a step below you, you have something to offer them. You have a story you can share with them that will help them to move forward in their own spiritual journey and becoming more into the image of Christ. But parents have a unique ability. Spiritual parents have this unique ability and desire to think in ways that reshape their priorities. 
where they no longer live for themselves, but are starting to prioritize their lives around the mission of Jesus Christ, which was to make disciples. And so it's not just a change in activity, it's actually a whole new mindset that people at this stage start to adopt, where they start to think team rather than individual. And their primary driving desire is to see others come more and more increasingly into maturity in their own faith. And so when you hear a spiritual parent talk, they don't talk in terms of themselves. Quite often they talk in terms of what God is doing through them in the lives of other people. For example, they might say something like, you know, there's this guy at work who asked me to explain a biblical passage to him. Would you pray for me so that I would do that well? Or they might say, you know, discipleship starts in the home. Would you hold me accountable to disciple my children? And these are the types of things that they would be more focused upon saying. Now, at this stage, what is the greatest need? Well, ongoing relationships with other spiritual parents because this is one of the smaller categories. And so they need to have these connections where they continue to grow together, to know each other, and to encourage and support one another. But most important is they need to have opportunities to pour themselves into some other people, to pour themselves into the next generation so that they can raise up another generation of Christians to carry on the mission of Jesus Christ. More could be said about all five of these stages we've talked about here. But I hope that as we walk through these, even quickly, it's given you a sense of where you may be at and what opportunities exist for you now and exist for you in the future, in some of the future stages that may be ahead of you, if you will choose to engage in the process. But I want to mention one more thing. Wherever you're at, I don't want it to be a sense of discouragement. Because maybe you're at a point where you're a little later in life, but as you look at the wheel, you're thinking, well, I'm so far back in my faith stage. Well, assessments like this are not meant to be a way to designate one believer as more valuable or better than another. That's never the goal of these types of things. They're meant to be a tool to help us understand where we are so that we can proceed forward. They're meant to be a tool that can help us understand where we may have stalled out so we can get back in the game again and stop plateauing or stop checking out and re-engage and start moving forward once and more as we get shaped more and more into the image of Christ. But never forget, you are not alone on this journey either. You are a big part of it. It can't be done without you. But each of us in our spiritual journey needs other people to come around us. And we need to understand God's role in the midst of this as well. What is your part? Well, your part is to make your spiritual journey, your spiritual life a priority. And this can be tough to do because the world competes for our attention and competes for our energy. And we need to be careful we don't fall prey to becoming full-time people of the world and part-time Christians. You know, one of the simplest ways we can avoid doing this is in something that we can simply refer to as having your daily chair time. 15 minutes. 15 minutes in your favorite chair with a Bible and a few minutes of prayer. If you commit to that 15 minutes, do more if you can, but even just 15 minutes of daily chair time, I promise you it will change your life. And you'll see that it will also lead to greater opportunities, ever more increasing opportunities to know how to grow and how to serve from what God is doing in your life from that 15 minutes a day. That's all it takes to start. But only so much can be done on our own, which is why we also need others to come into our lives as well. You know, this world around us is full of people that we can and quite often should have relationships with, but only a few of them will actually have a shared faith with us, such as people in our church or people who are part of a small group 
where we're able to be in a community of like faith and of like challenge. And in a community like that, we can receive things that are unique to the Christian body. We can receive community, care, and correction within that group. We receive community because we're not on a solo mission. The Christian life was never meant to be done alone. It was meant to be done in community. We were created with this need to know others and to be known by others. And that can happen in the context of our church, in particular within our small groups. There's also an opportunity for us to care for one another, to carry each other's burdens, to pray for one another, to offer practical help of helping somebody move or, or cook a dinner or look after their kids, the practical help that happens in community. But also, one that we can do so much more often is to confess our sins to one another, to bring these things out of the darkness and into the light that they can be dealt with within the Christian community. But then correction as well. You've probably heard it said that iron sharpens iron. It's a fantastic proverb that talks about how we need other people in our lives to sharpen us, to correct us, to hone what we know, to hone that sword of the word that we use in the world to, to defend and to be on the attack against the evil one. People that can take us to a point of correction when we step out of line. People who can hold us accountable, trusted people in our lives that we have confidence and faith in. But then finally, we also need to allow God to do his part. Because he's already at work. He's already at work doing something around you, just waiting for you to join him in what he's doing. And never forget that it is God who is the one who changes the heart. It is God who uses and ordains the people and events in your life that leads to spiritual growth, that leads to you knowing what's happening within your life and within others. And he is the one who impresses upon us the areas where we have opportunity and the areas where there is a concern where we need to allow ourselves to continue growing. But we also need to be careful to not do God's part for him. If you're anything like me, I can be impatient. I don't like waiting. I'd rather just do it myself sometimes. And that can transfer into the world where I need to allow God to do his part too. Recall the story of Abraham back in Genesis where Abraham received a promise that he would be given a son who would carry on his name and who would carry on God's promise to future generations. But, but God didn't act fast enough for Abe. So Abe and Sarah went out and took matters into their own hands, and, and Abraham had a child with Sarah's servant. And another child was born of human will, contrary to what God's promise had been. You see, we need to be active in the tasks that are put before us. We need to be active in those, but we also need to be faithful to wait upon God, to allow him to be God, and so that he can bring about change, and that he can bring about the growth in our situations and in our hearts. Now, folks, in a moment, we're going to come to a point of sharing and communion. That's where we're going to be ending today's message near the end of the service at. But before we do that, I want to invite you first to consider some of the details, some of the more technical details of what we've covered here today. Because it all relates back to what we find on the table. It relates back to these elements on the table that are symbolic of Jesus' love and sacrifice for us. That is the means by which we're able to move from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. That is the means by which we can have that transition so that from that point on, we have the ability to grow more and more into the image of Christ. And so before we partake of these things, I want to invite you to honestly consider, are you engaged? If you really take a step back and look at your, your life, your schedule, your priorities, your time over the last week or two, can you honestly say that you are currently passionately engaged in growing in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Or is it perhaps more defined by a need to re-engage 
in such things. You know, out of love for all of us, God sent his son to die upon a cross that would pay the price for all of our sins. And because of that, there is no longer a need for any of us to bear the, the, the shame and the guilt that comes from the wrong things that we've done. Because we can be forgiven. We can be made new. And that is something that is available to everybody. Everybody here and everybody that you will drive by, walk by, and work by in the days ahead. Because the price has been paid. And this table is for people who have accepted Jesus Christ and that gift. Who believe that Jesus was successful in his defeat of sin, in his defeat of death. And those people who declare Jesus as Lord of their lives. You know, he gave his very life for you. And he calls us each to do the same for him. To give our lives back to him. So, if you have yet to pass from that stage of death to life, you can do so right now. You can do so by simply praying, even just right where you sit, that from the words of your heart, say, Jesus, I have sinned. I, I, I've done wrong things to other people, and I've done wrong things against you. I need to be forgiven of these things. And I believe that Jesus Christ paid the price so that I can be forgiven of these things. Thank you for the new life that can be mine. I now give you my life that I may continue to grow in understanding what it means to walk with Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that if that is the cry of a person's heart, that they become a new creation, that they become a child of God, and the Holy Spirit moves in and helps them to grow. Now, whether that happened in a moment even just right now, or if that happened years ago. Whenever in your life that may have happened, before we come forward to receive the elements, I want to ask you to identify where you're at. If stagnation is present, to confess that. To confess that before you come forward and say, Jesus, I've stagnated, I've stalled out. I've become a full-time worker and a part-time Christian. I need to re-engage in my journey with you. I need to re-engage and double my efforts to, to spend that time in your word, to spend that time praying, to spend that time serving and joining into a community. To acknowledge that and confess it. And then to come forward and to receive these elements as a symbolic sign that he made the way, he paid the price, and we're recommitting and reaffirming our walk with him. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come join me up on the stage here. In a moment, I'm going to pray. And then when you're ready, as the worship team prays, as you're ready, just, just come forward. We're not going to have communion served today. We're going to invite you that after you've had that moment of reflection to come forward and from any of these three tables here to, uh, to receive both elements at the same time. You can uh, take them back to your seat and then just whenever you feel ready, if a moment of preparation, a moment of prayer, to take those elements just right where you sit together. But come together as families if you can. Come together as couples. Let's serve one another as much as we're able during this time while the worship team prays, uh, plays. And then following, once everyone's been served, I'll come back up and I'll close our time with a word of prayer. And then we'll receive our benevolent offering. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who paid the price, who paved the way, and offers the free gift of salvation to all. Lord, we see before us on this table the bread which is symbolic of his body broken for us and the cup 
which is symbolic of his blood, which covers over all of our sins. God, we know that this was done so that we could pass from death to life, but so that we could also not just stop there, but continue throughout all the days of our lives to our dying breath to be gradually and continually shaped into the image of Christ. Lord, that is tough to do. You know it's tough. That's why you gave us each other. That's why you gave us the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would have a conviction within us and a passion within us to to re-engage in that if we need to. Or for those who are already engaged, Lord, to help others to grow in their faith. That we may all be increasingly more little Christ in our homes, in our church, and in this world. We thank you for your sacrifice, Jesus, that initiates and maintains and makes this all possible. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we declare to be your Son and our Savior. Amen.